This is a national emergency. Our work here will ensure a peace mankind has never seen. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, continuation of the Christopher Nolan Retrospective series. That's happening, isn't it? Join Garrett and Matt as they bring Adam on board to carry on their look at the directorial efforts of one of the most successful filmmakers of our time, a series they started back in 2020. What does Adam think of Nolan's work? How do the boys feel about the stance against streaming that Nolan took back in 2020? And could this be the year he takes home a Best Director Oscar? Answers to all these questions and more coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Who did the Japanese surrender if they knew what was coming? Oppenheimer, released July 21st, 2023. Budget on this was $100 million. I could have sworn it was way more. Box office so far, $649 million. And this was directed by me and Matt's old buddy, Christopher Nolan. All right, Chris Nolan. Now, Adam, you teased last week. Me and Matt have done the work of Christopher Nolan. We did it with over at the other place, and you were not involved on those shows. All right, so... Brief rundown, how do you feel about the work of Christopher Nolan? As a watcher of his filmography, I am a giant fan. I don't do that as a Nolan nerd, as some people are known, you know, where I don't think he's infallible, but I also don't think he's made a bad movie that I've seen. Um, We'll discuss this one. But I first saw Insomnia in movie theaters. I saw that one mainly because I wanted to see Robin Williams play a dark character. Stay tuned for Death to Smoochie. So I I was introduced to him there. I never saw Batman Begins until The Dark Knight was about to come out. So I completely missed that boat until later. But Laura and I saw the Prestige in theaters, or not the Prestige, I'm sorry, Inception in movie theaters, walked out, and I felt that was just mind-blowing. The Prestige, I absolutely adore. I mean, there's he, to me, up until now, has not made a bad. I've still not seen Dunkirk. I have it. I just haven't seen it. And I'm one who thinks Interstellar is a fucking masterpiece. I adore that film in a huge, huge way. So I, I don't think he's infallible, but I do think he is not only a great filmmaker, but one of the important ones today for what he does. You had me till you said you liked The Prestige. And it's got Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. <laughs> yeah, and Insomnia. Boy. There's also a hot stance that we need to take Adam to task for because as a comic book stand, which he is, he has also said Dark Knight, he feels, is the weakest of the trilogy. Oy vey. We will give you the floor to expound <laughs> on that because I, that is as hot. 
you are not known for controversial takes necessarily <laughs> as much as we are. But that is your that is your axe to grind. It you know what? And I thought of that. And yes, I've said that. I will say it is it's the one that I return to <laughs> least. I think in that franchise, I I watch it, and you know what? The my first time seeing it was at a drive-in. So I didn't have that immersive theater experience for a very long time. It is a amazing film. I think Batman Begins is an almost perfect Batman movie. And The Dark Knight Rises has a lot of things that I wanted in it, specifically Talia Agul, Bane, and things like that. I, I didn't need the Joker. I think The Dark Knight is an amazing film, and while it may be the best of the trilogy, it's not the one that I revisit most often. Yeah, because they did that Agul trilogy perfectly. Um, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I wanted to tell you I'll go in Bane as well, but that doesn't mean I like the game. <laughs> ah, we're busting your balls, Adam. You know, this was one, when I heard it was coming out, it took me by complete surprise. I didn't know he was working on a biopic. This is the first biopic he's ever done. Yes, he's done World War II films before. He did Dunkirk, the aforementioned Dunkirk. And, you know, it took me a while to watch Dunkirk. And when I finally did watch it, I believe it was for that podcast retrospective that me and Matt did. I didn't see it in theaters. It was the first Nolan film I didn't bother going to go see in theaters because I thought I was so fucking just torn apart by Interstellar and not in a good way. So I didn't bother seeing Dunkirk in theaters. But when I finally watched it, I quite enjoyed it. So when I found out he was doing a biopic based on a uh, figure in history that is just as iconic as he is controversial, it kind of piqued my interest. But at the same time, I wasn't too excited for it. I think... When I assess my excitement of Oppenheimer, it was more conceptually than the actual subject matter in and of itself. Because to me, doing a biopic is the snotty equivalent of directors doing superhero movies, where everyone gives director shit for taking a paycheck and doing a superhero movie. But anytime someone does a biopic, we don't bat an eye whatsoever, because they can be as self-serving and as smug and quite frankly, as cliched as superhero movies, because a lot of biopics follow the same template, just changing the subject matter. As far as Nolan's approach, I was curious because after Tenant, which I think is his worst, uh, next to Insomnia is his worst movie, I was curious to see what he was going to do to follow that up. I would not have imagined a biopic about the atomic bomb and the fallout of that, both literally and figuratively, would be his next step. I wasn't excited for it, but I'm always curious when he has a new movie coming out, because I will go see it in the theater, no questions asked. Yeah, let's talk about Tenet. When we last saw Nolan, the country was not, the world was not in a good place, and he was not looked at in a good light around that time, because he was fighting to get that movie in theaters at a time when nobody wanted to go to the movie theater. And when that movie did come out, Matt's completely right. I believe that is close to being his worst film. The prestige is up there for me. Probably not anybody else. But to me, I, I just I find that movie unwatchable in so many ways. And Interstellar. But Tenet was really, really bad. And to come out in 2020, just a terrible, terrible time to try to fight that fight was not a good look. Yeah, it's tough because I understand his side of it. I understand WB's side of it, but it's a shame. I think he wanted to do to movie theaters what Tom Cruise did do to movie theaters with Maverick. 
That <laughs> didn't really work out for Mission Impossible this year, but I think that's what he was hoping for. The big misstep on everybody's part is you look at what this is doing now at the box office. You look what it's going to do at the end of the year, next year, at awards time. Warner Brothers, that they haven't had somebody fired over losing Christopher Nolan from their stable is crazy. Because this is a guy who never wanted to make movies anywhere else other than Warner Brothers. And this pissing match between them over Tenet caused Chris Nolan to go to Universal. Mind-boggling. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I just watched a documentary on HBO Max about Warner Brothers. And Nolan's all over that final part of that documentary. Yeah, he is. And and after I was done watching, I'm like, wait a second, he's not with them anymore. Like, this must have been filmed literally, like, right right before all that shit went down. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And and as somebody who has been on the business side of the industry, it's, I guarantee somebody lost their job and maybe their head over the fact that Nolan left. But let's not forget why he left. A, A big reason why was because WB, when COVID was on the massive rise and everybody was stuck at home, WB made the ballsy choice to take every single thing that they were going to release in theaters and put it on their service, HBO Max. And Nolan was like, um, no, (laughs) you're not going to do that to my film. And that pissing match, again, at a time when there were so many things more important than whether your movie goes to a theater or not, it made everybody look bad. I think he came from a place of good intention, but I, I also think at the same time, no movie is above the general well-being of civilization. So I sort of resisted the idea of him putting this off, especially for something that, let's be honest, despite what the box office take has been, it's a bit of a misnomer. I also don't think it was something that people would have rushed out to see at the time of COVID. I just think what we're seeing with this and Barbie is a real outlier to a certain extent. There are factors we can talk about, but I also don't believe that this is something that was justified risking your own personal health to go see in a theater. Which the two of us had to do because we were doing that retrospective. Great. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that was the that was the movie that got me to go back to theater in 2020. We got The wife and I went together to see it. I will never go to a movie theater in a mask again. Especially for well, a movie I- that was damn near three hours. Oh, God. Yeah. And was not good either. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like that, yeah. I risked life and limb to watch that crap. And Yeah, my wife went with me for one reason, Robert Pattinson. Okay, well, he got past that whole thing, and then Buzz started coming out about this one, and I started seeing trailers for it. God, I think I saw the first trailer maybe about a year ago, year and a half ago. Around the time I started seeing my fiancé, actually. It was around the time I started seeing trailers for this thing, and wow. They were certainly promoting the explosive side of it, weren't they, Matt? I mean, they they put the fucking name out there, and it was like coming one year from now. So the the marketing push for this started very early. That that was something that I think is a constant through a lot of Nolan's. I would say Dark Knight on. They've started really promoting his movies at least a year out. Because you remember the the trailer for Dark Knight Rises came out with Harry Potter, which was a, a year apart. So I wasn't surprised that they were putting Nolan's name, but I also don't think people. The general audience knew about the whole Warner Brothers thing. Movie distribution is something that not a whole lot of people keep tabs on. Yeah. In fact, when we went to this, I had to kind of 
informed Jen of all of that. And uh, yeah, and if you ask somebody like my mom or somebody like that, they, they're not going to know any of that either. So that's a good point as well. But my mom, somebody who is not a fan of Nolan, will say, I mean, I, I will tell you, when I, the second I got out of that theater, I got a text from her saying, so how was it? She kind of wants to see this too. And if anything, the fact that he's going back to history really tells you that, I mean, it's going to bring different people to the theater, different people than, say, Barbenheimer, Barbie, which came out that exact same weekend. I mean, I gotta say, when we went to the theater, the hype for that whole thing of you just you do a double feature, see Barbie, then see Oppenheimer. I haven't had a movie theater experience like that probably since the last Avengers film. There were people there dressed in pink. There were people there with pink hair. There were people there just aching to see the movie that they were there to see and everybody was talking everybody was having a good time i gotta say the theatrical experience of this was a blast you know what i'll let that finish um i'll go real quick because i saw this weeks later i'm getting able to jump on this now because i just saw it a few days before we did this so it's been out what three weeks four weeks at this point Uh, i finally had a day off with nothing to do and i'm like i'm gonna go see it and i think that i'd get a simple little theater experience no the only screen that i could see this in was imax which, wow. one, I was upset that I was having to pay $17 for a matinee on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> mm. Two, as I've well documented, my AMC doesn't freaking calibrate their fucking IMAX screen. And even on this one, I had horizontal ghost lines through a lot of the movie. Thank you, AMC, for finally sending me a voucher. So I was not thrilled that I was going to have to see it the way that I was going to, but there was no other movie I really wanted to see. I, I hear great things about Barbie. It's it's not for me, and my daughter doesn't care. I'm not going to go see it. Mission Impossible, I'm going to see with the wife when we get a chance. So this one I wanted to see. This is a character that I care about. I love history. I've seen documentaries. I've watched Fat Man, Little Boy. I was very interested because I had no idea what this movie would be. So, yeah, finally got to go see it. And it was a pretty subdued theater, very definitely skewed older, but a nicely respectful crowd going into this, which I was happy to see. And it was still like a third full IMAX theater almost four weeks in, which blows me away. Yeah. In fact, I think that was part of the deal that Nolan cut with Universal was it has to be out four weeks in <laughs> IMAX screens because of Take course that, it is. Tom Cruise. I know. <laughs> uh, which, and when you think about it, okay, IMAX is just a name. It's a brand. You know, Dolby Digital screens are just as big, and to me the sound quality is better. There's a slew of what they call just giant screen formats, which are just as big as IMAX. At this point, IMAX is just a name they're slapping on it. They don't hold the same... They used to go around and inspect the theaters monthly, and they had a rigorous standard, and that's gone. It's not even THX anymore. It's IMAX is a brand, and it's disappointing. That's sad. All right, let's go to the gay man of this podcast. Goudreau, have you seen both these films? No, I still haven't. Oh, you still haven't seen Barbie yet, huh? Nope. I don't. Wow. I just don't care. Yeah? I, I Interesting. Can't, I can't quantify it. You know, I like Greta Gerwig. I love Margot Robbie, but mm-hmm. it's it's not a brand that interests me. I, I think that that's just what it comes down to for me. Now, having said that, I saw this, uh, I think we went opening, was either opening night or the... The, the night after its release. And I gotta say, it was really busy, and we went to one of those large screen formats. I don't know what the fuck it's called. It's not, it was Dolby Atmos, I think is what it was. Mm-hmm. And it was about as busy as you would expect. Uh, it, it looked like movie theaters are 
how they used to look after a couple years of between the pandemic and, you know, a lot of other factors. It's good to see that people went out to see, you know, because this is not a franchise. It's a real, I don't want to call it adult movie, but it's... it's No, you're right. It is. Again, it's something that gets people like my mom interested. You know, I, I definitely consider that an adult oriented film yeah i i definitely want to see barbie eventually i'm just not going to rush out to theater to see it not it no 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 don't worry all right let's talk about a little bit i mean i only have a few things about the making of this one thing i do want to mention is everybody who i mean this is a stacked cast in this fucking movie uh this call sheet is insane yes when you look at it from top to bottom and that includes people that were both highly publicized for being in it and the Almost dozen plus of I had no idea they were in this. Yeah. And it should be said, the majority of these people, people like Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., they usually ask for at least $20 million per film. Here, they all took pay cuts. They all made $4 million each to do this film, which, God, give me $4 million to do a job. I'm not going to call that a pay cut. (laughs) Um, I found that interesting that even after... The way 2020 made him look, everybody was still anxious to work with Nolan. Everybody wanted to be in this. Everybody pitched in for it. Everybody wanted to be a part of this, which they knew was going to be an event film. Yeah, I think they they knew that this was going to draw eyes. Most of the people that have not worked with Nolan before. You know, Killian Murphy is obviously the, the mainstay, but Matt Damon was an interstellar. Uh, there's a couple other people that are recurring collaborators, but no Michael Caine. That was the, that was the shocking one. Yeah. No Michael Caine. I, no Marianne Cotillard. I thought for sure Michael Caine was going to be in here somewhere. I thought he was going to be Einstein until I found out it wasn't him. But yeah, I was surprised that the, the, the depth chart of this cast is as impressive as anything he's ever assembled. For something that is not one of his Batman movies, which makes it all the more impressive. Absolutely. Funny story about Matt Damon being included in this is he told his wife, he was like, you know what, I'm done acting. Like, I think she was kind of pushing for him to get out of acting. And he's just like, yeah, I'm done. Unless Christopher Nolan comes calling, I'm not going to act. Well, guess what? The very next call he got was Christopher Nolan. (laughs) All right, boys, we've set this up. Me and Matt have been anxious to talk about this film for going on a month now. By the time this podcast is being released, it would have been a month that since the movie's been out. I have so many notes here. What do you guys say? We just dive right in. So we're seeing visions of an explosion in the beginning. So right away, we're seeing guilt personified on screen. Mm-hmm. And this is the uh, Nolan's... Tr- like, this is the one of the most... In the same way that, like, Lady in the Water is the most Shyamalan movie he ever made, this is kind of the movie Christopher Nolan has been building to his entire career. Yeah. Because uh, all of his hallmarks are, are in this movie, starting with the, the non-linear, borderline incomprehensible way this movie starts. Everything from the time period changes to the color going in and out, a lot of quick cuts and big edits. You got to be ready to watch this movie because it doesn't, yeah. it does not hold your hand. Yeah. In fact, when we got out of this, I told Jen, I said, I got to watch it again because there was no way I was going to be able to keep up with it, with the notes, with one viewing. Adam, how are you feeling at the beginning of this, sir? I was stunned. You know, I didn't really know what to expect. With it being an IMAX and Dolby and all that, like obviously it was going to be big, filmed big. But I had no idea how he was going to go about telling the story. You know, I didn't want to look into it too much. I didn't read any reviews when it first came out because I knew I was going to get to it eventually. So I, I didn't know what they were going to do to hook me to, you know, or not me, but the general audience. Like, I'm down for an Oppenheimer movie, freaking sitting at home watching the History Channel. 
So what are they going to do to make it compelling? And damn if he doesn't just, like, right off the bat, at least find a way to get you kind of sucked into what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, is it a little confusing? Yeah, but what isn't when it comes to Nolan and, you know, also when it comes to Grand Unified Theory and things like that. So I, I think it's an impressive way to start. And as you both have said, this does not hold your hand. It doesn't pretend to hold your hand. It's not going to. You know, it, it is a movie for adults. You know, it, it asks you to sit and pay attention. We then cut to a trial. We're seeing the words fusion and fission alternate on the screen. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, boys, but is this the first time we've seen Nolan use this black and white to color technique since Memento? Uh, I believe so. Inception plays with color palettes, but no, not, I don't think there's been another one that goes color black and white. But I do think it's important to show such a dramatic separation in time between the Senate confirmation that's going on and the building of the team. And that's where the fission and fusion matters, because those two words, you got one to bring together fusion and you got fission which is the detonation the explosion the mm-hmm. annihilation of what got brought together i also think the choice of black and white is great because that hearing and that period of the movie is a microcosm of where we were as a country everything was black or white you know, ironically with what i'm about to say you are either a full red-blooded communist or you are a gung-ho american and Oppenheimer himself was perceived as either genius or enemy of the state. Nobody had a middle-of-the-road opinion, so I think that reflection, as blatant as it is with black-and-white photography, is an important distinction to make. Yeah, it's also a good idea to me because it, it, it shows the subjective POV of Oppenheimer and then the POV of Robert Downey's character of Strauss is being shown in black and white. So this is a different way of story of, of Nolan telling this story. And, you know, I, I got to admit, I was kind of scared because Nolan is the sole screenwriter of this. So I was thinking, okay, well, I, I'm kind of scared about how he's going to write this and how he's going to kind of throw us in. But he really does because this is a great way to get us involved because it just keeps you paying attention. And we're going to say it over and over, but he's not holding your hand here. But he is giving other techniques to make sure you know what you're watching. So we're seeing Oppenheimer as a physics student as he gets so upset at Professor that he poisons his apple. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, I knew you all through high school. You never did this, so stop fucking laughing. I I never did this. No, I had some teachers I could, you know, beat up one son, but I did not ever assault a teacher. To me, it's playing loose with facts or story. You know, there there is a rumor that he... That he plotted to harm a tutor, but to me it shows he's you know smart as a chemist as well. That he goes and pulls the was it the arsenic off and injects it in. He's having visions of the paradox he creates later coming to fruition, and then Oppenheimer meets Niles Bohr and stops him from eating the poisonous apple. Now the movie trusts that you know where you are, as Nolan doesn't have any subtitles to have you do so. Well, one of the things that I think can be a bit disorienting is that this movie, it's sort of the the movie I'll compare it to in a certain way, is it's kind of like Goodfellas, where it expects you to have knowledge of these real-life people, but also doesn't really hold your hand. Like, Gotti tried this spectacularly, where where they dropped the names of all the crime families and all the mob bosses. Here, there's no, like title cards to announce who these people are, or a lot of... They'll do, like, subtitles when the person walks on screen saying, like, Louis Strauss, Secretary of Commerce, whatever he was at the time. movie doesn't do that. One hand, I admire it. 
On the other hand, I'm also at an advantage because I know history fairly well. Yeah. But I can mm-hmm. imagine, with the sheer amount of people that are in this movie, some can get lost in the shuffle, and some you're like, wait, I have no idea why that person was here or who they're supposed to be. Now, is this a good job by Nolan, do you think, of doing what he's doing here, which is not showing any subtitles, but still showing where you are? Yeah, I like it. Because this movie, um, on the whole, is something that is trying to strike the balance no one has always wrestled with his whole career. What is the balance between genuine human emotion and the complete misunderstanding of how the universe operates? And how do you... How do you find that middle balance as a filmmaker, especially for something that is both a biopic and as grandiose when you get down to the science as how he tries to display cloning in the prestige? It's something that has persevered throughout his entire career. But I think more often than not in this movie, he he gets it right. More visions from Oppenheimer as glass shatters, and this is when the composer score really comes into view, and I have to say, I, I find the score phenomenal. Now, this guy, Ludwig Goransson, he did Tenet, but he also did the first two Creed films, and he did Black Panther, Black Panther Wakanda. He's a pretty well-renowned composer. Nolan hasn't had Zimmer in his corner for a while now, but I don't think he loses a step in the music department. I think the music here is really good. He's also done... Uh little tv show called the mandalorian very catchy theme very different type of music brought to that Mm -hmm. um i think i remembered knowing that zimmer wasn't doing this but this is zimmer-esque and i don't mean that insultingly by by gorenson you know i'm not saying he's aping but it's a see it's tough because i don't want to give nolan credit for a score you know that's really the composer's work but it feels like it belongs in a Nolan film. I think we know what we mean by that. We get the bombs. We get the, um, by that I mean B-A-W-M, not B-O-M-B. <laughs> so it's it's very well done that way. And to your point, I fucking adore the score. I think it is beautiful. There is a part towards the middle of this movie, and I could not believe it. I'm sitting dead center in a IMAX theater, and I'm getting emotional to a score in this film. And as much as I love them, I'm not one that gets you know, emotional with it other than pumped up. And yeah, like it struck me. And I think this is going to be one of the many nominations or win that this film gets is the score. I'm not going to say I was missing Hans Zimmer because I think the score is great, but in certain ways it is aping that with the way it, there are a lot of those Zimmer-esque swells. Uh, but I like that he uses a lot of violins because I think you need a certain amount of delicacy with the parts of this movie that are predominantly very quiet, especially when everything starts to converge in the in the last part of the movie. But it also knows to crank itself up to the max, the IMAX, if you will, when the movie calls for it. Now we're also getting a real intro to Robert Downey Jr.'s character of Louis Strauss. And I'm going to say right now, this is a Downey I've been waiting to come back since Zodiac. I feel he got comfortable since he got the Iron Man role 15 years ago, which, God, think about that, folks. Which I'm not faulting him for, by the way, for he was made a millionaire due to that role, but shit like The Judge and The Soloist, just preconceived crap. Here he's back to form, and boy, do I love him in this movie. I love how people are shocked that Robert Downey Jr. is great in this movie. It's the, it's the most ridiculous. <laughs> I know. Like, I, I, like people that's, why, that's, why, that's why I preambled it with the fact that I'm not faulting him for it. It's just, you know. And even if the people who know him only as Iron Man are the ones that are surprised. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm like, 
Because yeah. it it was not his ability that stalled his career. It was all his extracurricular stuff yeah. in trouble. Because uh, he is and was one of the most celebrated actors of his generation. You know, go back to less than zero. Chaplin. You look at, you know, Chaplin. You look at, he could be really wild, too. You watch stuff like Home for the Holidays or Natural Born Killers. He's really off the beaten path in that. But since Iron Man, he has been... Shackled is not the right word because he he made that he he built Marvel as much as Kevin Feige did. I think he is he is one one B, and I think part of the reason why Marvel has stumbled is honestly because he's not there. There is no character as compelling as Tony Stark uh, that has been put at the forefront. And you're right, the stuff he was doing in between. You left out Tropic Thunder though. That that is. Oh yeah, I know that was the same year as Iron. Yeah, I was going to say that was the same year as Iron Man. So, um, but you look at that—that that was 15 years ago. This is him flexing his muscles, showing people I'm going to remind everyone that I'm still as good as I've ever been. And I think this is going to be the trajectory of the last part of his career. I think he is going to do more variants in his roles, and I think the talk of his performance in this movie is well earned, uh, especially. He is the the Salieri of this movie, especially once you get to the last part. You know, I hope he takes more roles like this. But again, I, I have to reiterate, I was not surprised because he's always been. Even when he made his comeback with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Zodiac, you know, those are two very different performances. He's always had it in him. It's just now that he doesn't he doesn't have to cash the Marvel checks anymore. He can really just be an act, focus on being an actor. I really got to see Zodiac. <laughs> I keep saying. Oh that. fuck off! Are you serious? I've not seen it. I know. I know, and especially being that I live in the area where that movie takes place. Yeah, I know, I know, and Finch, yeah. Um, It's also weird because you've got Mysterio, the Hulk, and Iron Man in the same movie. (laughs) But I think Downey is, I think for most people, as you said, that Downey's going to be a a revelation of what he can do. For those that know him, and I'm one, I'm glad to see this return to form. Like, I love movie star Downey. I think that's fantastic. To Matt's point, yeah, that MCU was built on the back of Iron Man, you know, as much as anything else. But I've known that he could do this because we have seen it, and people that know that those smaller type of films, he is the big role. He's meet. There's no such thing as a small role, small actors. He personifies that when he takes something like this and makes it his own. He's great. There is no doubt that I think he's going to be rewarded for a lifetime of work because of this film. I also see, I saw in this a lot of Robert Downey Sr., senior known, you know, as a director for a lot of things, but also did an actor in a fair amount. And if you've seen some of the roles, I think Jr. is doing this almost as an homage to his dad and bringing some of that out. And I think he does it really well. But I love the two different sides that he plays in here. I think it's just so much more meat that Downey's had to chew in a very long time. And I'm glad. And when you hear him talk about working with Nolan, I don't know if this is going to be the last time they work together because he really seemed to enjoy being allowed to just stretch as an actor again. We're learning that Strauss met Oppenheimer in 1947 when he was a board member at Princeton, and he had met him to get him to run the Institute of Atomic Creation, given his reputation in physics. And this is when we get the first inklings of a conversation that has really been teased to us since that first trailer, that of a conversation between Oppenheimer and Einstein, this time from Strauss's point of view. I like that Nolan is sort of doing his own take on J.J. Abrams' mystery box bullshit, where it's... (laughs) The whole crux is, like, what did he say to him that drove Strauss to be so, like, vindictive that he Mm -hmm. wasn't let in on that conversation? 
it's sort and it's also a commentary on like all the talk about the top at the end of Inception. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of Nolan twisting that in a straightforward biopic. Um, so I like that really Nolan is is putting his own stamp on what could have been, you know, I'm trying to think of like if, you know, a workman sort of director just took, you're making a movie about Oppenheimer. They really would have, the bomb would have been 90% of the movie and it would have cut after they dropped it on Hiroshima. Whereas yep. Nolan's approach was, I'm going to focus on the intricacies of the person, but also the literal fallout of what happened. I think he's he's very much, this is a Christopher Nolan film in bold letters. Now, we've mentioned the title character a lot. We haven't mentioned who's been playing him that much. Mr. Killian Murphy, as Matt outlined earlier, a Nolan mainstay. The first time we've seen him in a leading role in a Nolan film. He's usually a background character. This might be the performance to beat this year. I think uh, Murphy's pretty fantastic here. He's got a lot to work with. You know, Nolan is giving him a lot to do with this role that when Nolan said that he's doing this biopic and he picked Murphy, Murphy could not have been happier. But at the same time, he knew the pressure that was going to come with it. I think he he's up to it. I think we see him, you know, he's very gaunt in this movie, which is by all counts and purposes was how Oppenheimer actually was. And we're seeing the stress and the weight and everything that's laid on him throughout the course of the movie. And I think Murphy plays it well. Yeah, this is an actor that for so long... You know, I think people that have that have that have watched the stuff has been like, man, he's he's going to break through one day, one day, one day. I mean, let's not forget he like completely uncredited and showed up in freaking Tron Legacy. You know, this is a guy who's done you know a lot of works. His his TV show on Netflix is gone for what four or five seasons now, and I think everybody's waited that knows his quality of work has waited for him to break big. I hope this is. I still don't think he's you know going to be a quote unquote movie star. But I think that this is going to get him noticed by so many more people in such a big way. And, yeah, he looks the part. He does a great job with it. That famous photo of Oppenheimer with the pork pie hat and the and the cigarette. You know, you can put those two side by side, and it's like looking. It's like that Jim Morrison poster that I used to have with Val Kilmer. You know, some people are made to play a certain role. And, yeah, uh, Killian Murphy is just fucking perfect for this. You know, those piercing blue eyes, his mannerisms, just fantastic casting, and I can't imagine somebody else pulling it off. Yeah, I don't have much more to add, but I'll compliment the makeup team as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad they did not go the way of, like, Lee Daniels the butler, where they cake people in makeup to desperately make them look like the historical counterparts. There, yeah. There's enough on him, and there's enough on Robert Downey Jr. to where you get lost to a certain extent, but, but it's not... This It could have been very distracting. And with the way this movie is so self-serious for a lot of it, I think having quote-unquote realistic makeup would have been a deterrent. Strauss says the purpose of the Institute is to create a haven of brilliant minds. He testifies that he knew of Oppenheimer's dealings before meeting him, but he really wanted to know what was said between him and Einstein. So he's focused on this. We cut back to the university and a train, and Oppenheimer reveals that he's homesick and he needs to go back to America, and he needs to be back with his brother and his ranch in L.A. And here's when we were getting the beginnings of the team he's eventually going to be putting together. Kind of Inception-like, isn't it, Adam? Or Avengers Assemble. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's easy. <laughs> we're putting the crew together. And I like it that way. I mean, it's you've got to find a way to tell this story. And narratively, like, how do you break this story? How do you try to make it compelling for an audience? You know, how do you tell a three-act structure? And I don't even know if this truly is a three-act structure. It kind of is. 
but you've got to find ways to keep people going along on this train ride with you, and I think he finds little ways along the way to do that. Oh, it's definitely a three-act structure, for sure. One thing I was going to mention, I did not see Nolan doing a political thriller, but I had no idea how much being tied to communism was going to play in the course of this film. And, you know, it it goes all the way back to his brother here. Matt, you being very, very familiar with the story, I read the book that this movie's based on, so I knew it was going to come up. Did you expect communism to come up as much as it does in this film? I think it had to, given Oppenheimer's background. Yeah. If you're going to focus on the person, I think it would be a disservice to glance over that. And also in a movie that is dealing with the repercussions of the atomic bomb, part of the Red Scare was about who knows about nuclear weapons and who, like, could you even trust your own neighbor? And it's this movie is also, it doesn't glance over the fact that we as a superpower in America only acted as a superpower in the name of self-preservation. You know, we portrayed the Nazis as the root of all evil, which they absolutely were. But once the war was over, we turned on anyone who helped us if it meant that we looked like we were the superiors. We ignored Nazis movements for the better part of five years. I mean, we were almost no different than, than Norway. We stood by. You know, we didn't get involved until we were attacked. There's a lot at play. So Oppenheimer transfers to Caltech in Berkeley, and here we're meeting Ernest Lawrence, a.k.a. Josh Hartnett. Here was a surprise. <laughs> I was wow. not expecting to see Josh Hartnett here. This was the actor that made Jen like literally like jump for glee. Like She loves It's like, wow, Josh Hartnett's here. <laughs> Josh Hartnett doing his best freaking Chris Hemsworth impression, too. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. He is massive, and it took me a moment to realize who I was looking at. Yeah, between him and the principal from Buffy, who we see in the trials, right, Matt? That's right. <laughs> what a cast. We're seeing Oppenheimer teach physics and stars and gravity, and this is when the communist part of the story comes into view. So Nolan's doing a nice job of illustrating how communism is playing into Oppenheimer's history, and it starts with this introduction of Gene Tatlock, played by Florence Pugh. Oh, man. How do you guys feel the love life, personal life, the other life that Oppenheimer led that didn't involve making bombs. How do you think that was played out in this? I think it was done messily, and I think that's appropriate. Rob J. Oppenheimer was, I mean, he he, he slept around, he took advantage, or I don't want to say take advantage, that sounds weird, but he took advantage of his position and his fame to sleep with who he wanted, when he wanted. So in that way, I think it I think it fits. You know, this was a nerdy guy who, it, God, what was he, like 20, 22, and he kept having these nervous breakdowns in real life, like kept, you know, almost committed suicide and everything else. And his, famously, one of his therapists told him that you need to start getting laid and it'll help you out. You need to have sex with as many women as you can. And it'll help you. It'll help you feel like a person. And that's kind of how he lived the rest of his life. So they they find a way to put it in here, interestingly, and kind of tie it into using that against him for communism. And it, I mean, it works out pretty well. I think Florence Pugh has done some really amazing work the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's decided to be as much of a chameleon as anybody in this film. And, you know, I think I think she does a damn good job. But it, it's an interesting way that they play with his sex life and his love life. It's not clean, but I think that's purposeful because it wasn't it wasn't in real life either. Yeah, it's sloppy and disjointed, which is indicative of his actual sex life. So I think that's intentional. But I think Nolan, his Achilles heel is writing female characters. 
Yeah. Uh, she reminds me a lot of uh, Marion Cotillard in Inception. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, his other female companion is given even less to work with because the movie never really bothers to explain what he thinks of her or specifically if he thinks about her whatsoever. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. This is Nolan's first sex scene, isn't it? Yeah, and it should be his last because this is the be the worst scene he has ever directed. Absolutely, yeah, it's in my notes as well. I, I, this and a scene later on really made me realize why he doesn't do these scenes in his films. I, I know they were supposed to be awkward to tell the story. They just felt stilted and unemotional more than anything he's ever done. It's also comical when he's reading the Bhagavad Gita off her boobs. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> And Adam's laughing his ass off. <laughs> Sorry, I met some freaks. <laughs> like I think I think I saw this in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I'm like that's what this felt right out. <laughs> the, the the way they keep using this quote though, it as somebody who knows that it wasn't even spoken with him until decades later, I I don't like it. It's it's there for the people that don't know. I've become death destroyer worlds. That's something he said in an interview in the fifties. So mm-hmm. and it bugs me a little bit, but I was not expecting to see naked Florence Pugh on screen and in IMAX. How you doing? Like I just I was not <laughs> expecting this. <laughs> on this week's episode of Who Adam Has a Crush On. <laughs> <laughs> We then cut to Oppenheimer in a camp with his brother, who says he won't live his life afraid of making a mistake, making the Communist Party the one for him. I think, you know what, it, I'm, real quick, I think mm-hmm. it's important to say, because this movie talks about communism from beginning to end. And in the 30s, and then into the 40s, country was in a Great Depression. I think a lot of people are going to conflagrate the American way of looking at communism as opposed to Soviet communism. And they really weren't the same thing, but the U.S. government used it the same way. Pro-labor, which, I mean, really American communism in the 30s was kind of just like the democratic platform today. You know, it was pro-labor and workers' rights. And that's vastly different than the socialism type of communism that was done in Russia. You know, Nolan is really, really close to doing a McCarthyism movie inside this movie. I wouldn't be surprised if he goes down that road in the next couple years. So they hit on it, but it's not... They hit it so hard that it kind of takes the accuracy out a little bit. It's also a, a strong parallel where he's making an allegory to today the way the, the hard right uses the word socialism yeah. to rival up their party base. We see Jean walking with Oppenheimer hand in hand, or are they, as she just leaves his side saying that she wasn't expecting to see him today. Oof. But this is interrupted by Oppenheimer being part of an atom being split, and Oppenheimer starts thinking for the first time about the chain reaction in building that a bomb would create. Gene insists on no more flowers, as his accomplishments are being celebrated, but the celebration is dimmed by word that Hitler has invaded Poland. And here is something Nolan does in this film that stunned me, and will really come into view by the end of the film. He knolls accomplishments and celebrations in this movie faster than I've ever seen. As soon as there's a moment of triumph for this character, boom, here's something to bring him down. I don't think I've ever seen a movie do that as much as Nolan does here. And effectively. Yeah, that's a good point. Every time he's got something to celebrate, it's an undercut. Oppenheimer then meets Kitty, played by Emily Blunt. Now, Kitty is married, but Oppenheimer is not painted as being happy himself, so he wins her over after a horseback ride. Nolan is painting the picture of a womanizer here. Are we supposed to like him? I think we're supposed to like him just because he's Killian Murphy. You know that he's smart and wise, and it's amazing that he... 
he is in this movie what Sheldon Cooper was supposed to be in the Big Bang Theory originally. Oh, Jesus. I mean, that, it, oh, he was supposed to be a womanizing scientist, just, just playboy. He literally was supposed to be this character. And so I couldn't kind of completely get that out of my mind. But I think it's important to show that he doesn't care, you know, if he hurts the people around him nearly as much. He doesn't think of them the same way. He doesn't have empathy for relationships, but she's into him the same way. It's her fourth marriage. You know, she says, we have an arrangement and, oh, come visit me on my ranch in Los Alamos. He's not pre-concerned with anybody else. You know, he wants a woman, he's going to have a woman. And if he doesn't want a woman, he's not going to. I don't know. The empathy is not there. I defy any other podcast out there to make a comparison between Oppenheimer and Big Bang Theory. Well done, sir. Matt, do you think we're supposed to like this character? No, but I I don't think Nolan is telling you that you should. Mm. Um, I think everything he's doing is very matter-of-fact, and he also never really outright apologizes for his actions. He'll defend them once he's in the once he's being quote basically interrogated mm-hmm. uh, after the war is over, but. I think Nolan is doing this in a very matter-of-fact sort of way, and he's leaving it up. For the first time in a long time, he's leaving it up to you to come up with your own conclusion. Uh, This is not The Dark Knight Rises where he is telling you lying is bad, and you should always tell the truth. We cut back to Oppenheimer and Jean as he tells her about his new knocked-up love, and she responds with, at least he didn't bring flowers this time. (laughs) This relationship lasts, what, ten minutes? (laughs) (laughs) she does give a great piece of advice here where she says don't alienate anyone with what you do you might need them later so yeah it's interesting i mean in real life the relationship because she was the daughter of gene i want to say the chancellor of stanford or Mm -hmm. or one of the ones here so they were literally close it's amazing that i live between berkeley and stanford here but he was a good like 10 15 years her senior you know, it's almost an Indiana Jones married type of situation at that point. But she, Jean, continued to have issues all the way up until her death. It's it's quite sad. Oppenheimer talks to Lawrence about his fear of Nazis having a bomb, and he's the one who can even the playing field. And this conversation puts into view the way a communist association can be viewed as a political risk, which is what Strauss is testifying. We're learning a student named Borden had access to Oppenheimer's files, and Strauss is convinced it was given to him. Uh, We then cut to Oppenheimer's home and see that Kitty is a drunk, and they are in no way fit to be parents. So Oppenheimer asks a friend of his to help, and he responds that there is a price to pay for all that Robert knows. So they are parents, but not very good ones. I, I mean, I haven't seen anything from Oppenheimer's kids or anything, but this doesn't really paint a very good picture of him as a parent. So they, they, have, they have two kids. I believe they both passed at this point. His daughter's the biggest tragedy, I'll touch it at the very end. His grandchild has been out basically doing a press round because of this movie. But all this is completely true, that not only did they give, and I don't think it was to a friend, I think it was to a different care worker that was working for them, but also said, eh, maybe you can go ahead and keep the kid. You know, if they were not <laughs> made to be parents, obviously. But... You know, they go this way with Kitty and what they show her, but I don't know. I get a little, like, it feels dirty because they don't really do much with it. It's there just to show it as a characteristic, but it, I, I don't know. I, I, I know she's getting amazing, you know, credit for this, but I don't love the way that they do Kitty in this film. Well, Matt said it earlier. This is the way Nolan does females, period. 
And I thought he would change with this. I really did. I thought there would be some way she could figure in that would make her a stronger character and make him a stronger character in return. He doesn't do that here. No, and it's it is tough because you don't want it to change history. You know, you that's need true. To, yeah, you need to stay factual when you're doing something like this because I hate hate the Hollywoodization, and it does it a few times in this movie as well where it changes things around. So I do think it's important to stay true, but I just I I don't get what the purpose is other than to show again a lack of empathy. I mean, she was a brilliant woman on her own, but you don't see that side of it. You see her as a drunk. Yeah. Kitty also expresses concerns over what Oppenheimer is doing. We then meet Leslie Groves, played by Matt Damon. Now, this is a bigger part than he played in Interstellar. And I gotta say, I really like him here. His character is here to recruit Oppenheimer for the Manhattan Project. Even though he's a womanizer and known to associate with communists, he thinks he's perfect for this gig. (laughs) But he has brought quantum physics to America, and Groves trusts that his efficiency will overrule the German lust for power, even though he couldn't run a hamburger stand, as he says. He's the levity the movie desperately needs. Absolutely. So I think he, he serves his purpose, and he's much better here than he is in Interstellar. Yeah. I don't know if there's a person I believe less as a military person than Matt Damon wearing this <laughs> wearing this uniform. Uh, there is, and he shows up in this movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> <As> a superior. <laughs> True. He's okay. Like I agree with Matt that he brings some levity in moments that are that are nicely timed, well directed. But of everybody else that I feel I'm watching, I'm watching Robert Oppenheimer. I'm watching Kitty Oppenheimer. I'm watching Gene Talbot. I'm watching Matt Damon wearing a military uniform. And at no point do I think I'm not watching Matt Damon. He's the only one I don't think is is lost into a role. Oh, wow. See, I get completely lost, especially when he starts retorting with him later. I think he's fine for this. They build a small town for Oppenheimer, and he views it as the perfect spot for success. We then see him recruit more people for his team, again, almost Inception style. We find out that Groves and Oppenheimer are taking trains to their recruits because planes are just too risky. Oppenheimer is then shown to be wearing a military uniform, and the use of quantum physics to build a weapon of mass destruction is something they need to do in order to beat the Nazis. They also don't want to use planes because they saw red eye. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about Murphy. (laughs) We're seeing another meeting between Einstein and Oppenheimer, where Einstein is being shown the plans they have come up with so far, and Einstein is scared at the prospect of a chain reaction that will eventually destroy the world. We see Robert once again meet up with his brother, and Oppenheimer is trying to be pulled for more information regarding what they are doing, but he's not budging. And then Strauss is trying to find out where Oppenheimer was based, as we see Robert, Kitty, and the crying baby pull up to their new home. We are then seeing Oppenheimer talk about how the biggest nuclear reaction was just created in water. And I love how Nolan uses sound in this movie, as these explosions fill your ears and really prepare you for what's coming you guys mentioned earlier where you guys saw this movie i I did not see this in imax by the time this movie was rolling around on friday i thought oh i I can just wake up friday morning and get a seat at the imax theater no the fucker was sold out at the times that me and jen could get tickets to see it because she had to get up early in the morning and we just couldn't go that late so i ended up seeing it at the nearby movie theater still pretty good sound and man you know what even though i didn't see this in imax i still felt the sound a lot nolan has taken some hits in his career for sound hell me and matt really reamed him for uses of sound last film and a couple films before i think it's used well here 
Yeah, I, I still think there's a couple times where the dialogue is difficult to hear, the mixing there, but that's really my only complaint as far as the, the sound work in this. Adam, yep, I, yep, I did, and I, I caught exactly what Matt's talking about, too. Um, I recently was watching an interview, and Nolan talks about how he will not ADR his films. He refuses to go in and re-record because he wants that audio from when he was filming and recorded it. And as much as some people, I think I just heard a little bit of it, is going to hate that type of thing, I appreciate the living hell out of that. And I think some of the deliveries, even when they're low, are much better because they're done in the moment, not done in a recording booth. For the longest time, I've said that I envision a movie where all the dialogue is stripped out like, everybody's acting, everybody's talking, but it is nothing but score and images. And I think a lot of Nolan movies actually work that way. Like, you could take the dialogue out of this movie. This movie works. But I do think recording it while you're filming is a much better job than doing it in a booth. Did he forget, like, that he made The Dark Knight Rises? I know. <laughs> like, and Interstellar. Yeah, he, read, he redid all of Tom Hardy's dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Eddie starts questioning whether they should use hydrogen for their bomb, and we learn that this is what Strauss has been pushing, the hydrogen bomb. Nolan uses another storytelling technique of this plant being on the table, which creates unease as people talk, they can't be seen, <laughs> and the plant is pushed so that they can be seen. This is a form of drama, and I love how Nolan uses it in this scene. I mean, come on. You're looking at the prospect of going to a movie, which is pretty much three hours of dudes standing around talking sitting and talking for three fucking hours you got to do things to keep things interesting and i love how he puts these little things like this plant here to keep things interesting it's amazing that this choice was made like it seems like a little nothing but mm -hmm. it really brings something out in this scene the first time or two that they move it it's almost comical but then it it adds some there's a level of drama of it moving back and forth depending on who's talking it it's i don't know why it works so well but it does it's, it's a good thing that they're able to come up with dramatic tension without it feeling so artificial. Yeah. Gross pushes for compartmentalization and caves into once a week letting top men into the site. And this is when Oppenheimer's security clearance starts being put into question. We're hearing that Truman is asking what's going on and we're seeing more members of Oppenheimer's team being recruited. Groves is upset, though, that they're going to Chicago without his knowing, and Oppenheimer's questioning why he was hired as Groves had studied engineering in college. Groves then tells the court that he knew of Oppenheimer's left-leaning when he hired him, and we are left hanging about whether or not, given the guidelines, Groves would clear him today. Adam, are you enjoying the way this trial is kind of integrated into the plot here? We're seeing the plot unfold. We're seeing him build the bomb. We're seeing other things. Are you enjoying how everything's interwoven? I am, and I know the inner result of it all. I don't think most people would, but I know how that hearing goes. I know what happens with the clearance, and I knew that going in. But I appreciate the way it's being done. I know that the nonlinear storytelling really bugs some people, but when I go into Christopher Nolan film, the last thing I expect is a linear movie. <laughs> so, but I think it's a way to bring that tension back and forth. And it's it's not perfect, but it's damn good. <laughs> I mean, this is a freaking biopic about the guy that built the atomic bomb. There's no way this should be as interesting as it is. But at this point, we're, what, nearing the halfway point, and it does not feel like I've been sitting in a theater this long. This thing is breezy to me. This thing does go by in a clip at three hours. I'll agree with you there. But I gotta say, the long, linear storytelling is the exact reason why I am not recommending this movie to my mother, because I think that would drive her crazy. Mm -hmm. you, you certainly have to know what you're getting into. But mm -hmm. I think the placement of these, you know, let's call it for what it is, these interrogations, 
yeah. are good because they keep adding new layers to what's happening. Context is characterization. It helps explain why certain things are happening without a whole lot of exposition, which has been one of Nolan's problems, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh, I think he's he's learning from his past mistakes. We then get another storytelling device. These marbles being placed in a fishbowl or wine glass to tell us how far they've come. Oppenheimer's security clearance is once again being put into question. As Dane Dehan, he shows up. His character says they are afraid of communist infiltration. Wow! We're not going to talk about him again until probably Amazing Spider-Man 2, but welcome, Dane Dehan. I knew he was a scumbag as soon as he showed up. <laughs> I know. Wednesday not. We then hear Oppenheimer tell the people, given the interrogation, that he went and saw Jean because she was still in love with him. And this is one storytelling device that I don't think lands very well. It's a play on Imagine Everybody Naked. He's seeing himself doing her right in front of everybody. And Nolan even occasionally cuts to a naked Murphy in this room. It's odd. And honestly, I don't think it's that effective. It's just bizarre. There yeah. was uncomfortable laughter in the theater. When Same they here. Yeah. I think that's trying to find, trying to explain what's going on in his head, but doesn't do a great job at it. We're hearing the stomps that we are going to be seeing and hearing play out later for the first time in this movie. These stomps were in the trailer. Another thing they've been teasing for a while. Kitty questions Robert's inability to fight what they're doing to him. We then meet Pash, who has killed communists with his own hands, and Groves is none too happy that he's involved. Boy, another guy, Casey Affleck. Man. Yeah, he is not believable in this role at all. I think that is the biggest form of miscasting in this movie. I completely agree with you. If you cast Ben, I would buy it because he's mm-hmm. huge. Scrawny-ass Casey Affleck fighting commies with his bare hands. He did not give up the name of the new edition as Groves has transferred him. We cut to a Christmas party where Bohr makes an appearance. He tells Oppenheimer that it's a new world and he's now the man who gave them the power to destroy whole countries. I, I feel like this is Christopher Nolan commenting on what he created with Batman Begins. <laughs> <laughs> we then see Oppenheimer passed out in the woods, and he is distraught over the suicide of Jean. And this is exactly what happened. She did, in fact, commit suicide. Maybe. Uh, it's detailed in the book that they say she did. It's hard to drown yourself in a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably not this way. Yeah. Another person I was not expecting to see, Olivia Thilby from freaking Juno is here. <laughs> God damn. I was like, where have I seen that chick before? And don't worry, I did not pull out my phone. But man, the second we got out of that theater, I pulled my phone out and I looked right away. And sure enough, it's a chick from Juno. Oppenheimer offers once a week discussions with Eddie, but he leaves. And Robert says that he doesn't think they should commit to the hydrogen bomb because the Russians will have no choice but to build one of their own. Borden tells Oppenheimer of a vision he saw from his plane while he was in war and how great it would be if they could come up with such a vision themselves. And then we're seeing Eddie. He testifies against Oppenheimer's loyalty to the United States. And we then learn that Hitler is dead and that Germany is about to surrender. So how do they justify using the bomb? By understanding it. All right, so the point of the bomb is kind of out. Groves is pushing for the bomb to be unveiled sooner than expected. And Robert is still pushing for his brother to be part of the team. There's another test explosion and more meetings, this time with James Remar. And here we are, Rami Malek, <laughs> About how soon they can use the bomb on Japanese cities and end the war. Wow, Rami Malek, And you know what? He's good here. He's good. I think he's better here than he was in Bond. 
trial for uh, war crimes if you saw that Freddie Mercury movie. (laughs) Preparations for the test blast are on, and even more things are being done with sound, with these distorted noises and a ticking clock. And we're seeing the bomb being prepared. And I love how we have this really poorly put together model of this thing, this big thing that they are kind of unveiling as they're going. But it tells you again, Adam, that there's a ticking bomb here and we're getting close to completion. It's it's a ticking bomb. The music goes along with it. One of the things that I love that Cornson does is when there's a time that they can't, when they're trying to figure out what's going on, you know, they're trying to do the math or something doesn't work. They're doing the computations. The score is not an orchestra at work. It's the orchestra warming up. It's kind of the strings each doing their own thing. So it seems completely disconjointed. And then it comes together as the character's mind and math comes together. And that's just fucking brilliant. But this march towards putting this bomb together this is the it's a horror movie in this moment like i can't think of any other way to put it like you're getting ready to see the monster emerge and it's horrifying and it's beautiful and this moment where like he's staring out the window and like puts on his hat when the music swells like that's the moment where i just like my breath caught and i was just like oh my god like this felt something special that it really should not be for a movie about frickin' Robert Oppenheimer. Like, this mm. has no reason to be what this movie is, and wow. Like, it's, it's kind of unbelievable at this point. I, I think what's important is also not only when music is used, but when it's not. Like, that whole deliberation scene where they're talking about using it on Japan, I don't think there's any music being played no. whatsoever. He lets the dialogue and the the dramatic heft of what they're contemplating speak for the music. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't fetishize it. It doesn't it doesn't try to manipulate you by bringing in a score. Yeah, now, which Ma- if Spielberg directed this it absolutely would have. <laughs> now, Matt, me and Adam have spoken that, you know, we think this movie goes by pretty quick. You didn't really give your end of that. Are, you are notorious for being kind of not bored but feeling time as it goes by. Did you feel the length of this film? Well, it's because I'm a millennial and we all have ADD. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't feel the length on this, and I was I was genuinely surprised because any time a movie is three hours, I do have to embrace myself mm-hmm. on on some level when I go into that theater. But it it moves, and I, and I think the the way that it's structured is one of the the benefits of why you don't feel that length. If this was a straight linear, you know, going from A to B to C, I really think you would have felt it. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with that. Oppenheimer tells Kitty to take down the sheets as more tests are being conducted. And you could just feel the tension from every which way in this film as this is going on, as Adam mentioned earlier. The wind and the rain pick up and there are questions on whether or not this will be a dud. And the opposite end when there's a chance that they push that button and there's a near zero chance they blow up the world. So a near zero chance, but still a chance. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the two things I remember from seeing the trailers because I tried to stick away from it. And it still made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) More build up to the button being pressed as Eddie covers himself in gel and glasses. Honestly, this is probably what I would do too. (laughs) (laughs) The button is pressed and holy shit. Nolan once again does something I did not expect. Instead of engulfing the theater with sound, he engulfs it in light. And as we're seeing the light and flame happen, along with some breathing, 
and then the sound hits you unexpectedly and I was thrown back in my seat when this actually happened. But you know what? For a movie that really built itself as being all about the explosion, like it's going to come to a massive conclusion and the explosion's just going to blow you away. I think Nolan did the right thing here where, yeah, it's a huge explosion. It's a big explosion, but it's not something that you're not going to necessarily pay premium price to just to see something like this like he doesn't want you to think about that he wants you to think about the history of it yeah he also wants you to think about the ramifications of what this will cause yeah because the movie is not over like this is the in many ways it's like your peak that everything escalates from um so by knowing that i understand why nolan chose what he did to make this work yeah every other filmmaker this is the end of the movie this is obviously what you end it with uh, it, it, it takes some stones to go, no, this is the incident that sets everything else off. I appreciate that it does not, even the scientists, they don't look at this bomb as a triumph of a weapon. It's a triumph of science. And with rare exceptions, that's how they all feel about it. The regret, all that takes place kind of immediately. And I think that's important because you could have had them cheering that this was going to be a weapon. You know, you could have Michael Bayed this up, you know, and it was all about this weapon that was going to destroy a country, and that's not what this movie does. It's a smart way to go. It's much more insightful than that. Maybe that's part of it. You know, Nolan is not an American filmmaker. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's kind of important. And he wrote this. Jonathan Nolan has lived in this country almost his whole life, uh, much more Americanized than Chris. So I do think that difference might matter. Interesting point. I didn't even think about that. And Adam, to kind of piggyback on something you said near the beginning of this podcast, I believe this is the end of the second act. Right here is the this explosion. Yeah, I, I definitely think you can look at it that way. I'm just saying that there's much more broken into this than a traditional three acts. But you could, from a bird's eye point of view, say, okay, you get to Los Alamos, that's the end of act one. Here with the detonation, that's the end of act two. You can just feel what's going on in Oppenheimer's mind during this whole thing. And he's even being flashed back to being called the destroyer of the world. Cheering is heard, and Robert is getting a ton of congratulations all around. Groves is intent on telling Truman, and we even have a shot of Oppenheimer being put on shoulders in front of an American flag. Very poignant image there, especially what after what Adam just said. This is not an American filmmaker doing this. We dissolve from a shot of Kitty to the bomb being taken away, and according to Groves, being used against Japan. Oppenheimer says that the fact that they have built this bomb gives them more or less responsibility of how it's used. And Eddie adds, it's all well and good until someone builds a bigger bomb. We're then seeing the newscast of the bomb being dropped on Hiroshima, being seen through Robert's eyes, and Groves calls to congratulate Oppenheimer and his people on a job well done as it went off with a bang. (laughs) This was brilliant because here's what I was scared of, boys. Yeah, we got the test explosion, right? But I thought... And I should have known better because I know Nolan's a better filmmaker than this. But I thought we were going to see the destruction of Hiroshima as well. I thought we were going to get a Michael Bay type shot of this explosion going off and these people just being disintegrated. Almost T2 style, right? But it was a brilliant idea by Nolan to not do that. All of this is being seen through Oppenheimer's eyes except for certain instances. And this was a great thing to do was to not show that explosion. Yeah, you couldn't do that because it would change the consistent perspective that the movie has shown in. It would have been a huge break in context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely would have. I Again, I think that's something almost anybody else would have done. They at least would have shown the Enola Gay flying over, and you would have seen the payload drop. But the restraint for, <laughs> for a three-hour movie that does everything that it does, the restraint, I think, is what makes this work so much. Mm-hmm. Oppie, as he's called by the people cheering his appearance, 
walks in to give a speech, not prideful as much as guilt-ridden. He says that the world will remember this day, and he bets that the Japanese did not like the results of the bomb. Oh, boy. I think it's important that, you know, he started this because he's Jewish. You mm-hmm. know, and they kind of, they, they keep hitting that little by little, but not, they don't hit you over the head with it. But it was to stop Germany. Germany was stopped. Once the genie's out of the bottle, once you're marching towards the science, you were not going to end it. His frame of reference, his mind, his want, you know, had completely changed. He couldn't destroy Germany at that point. So it's about nothing but science now. This is when Nolan gives his most vivid imagery yet, as Robert's hearing screams but not cheers anymore, and he is seeing a blast through their eyes and even someone burning up in front of his eyes. And this girl here, by the way, this is his oldest daughter. And again, we're not seeing a bunch of Japanese being destroyed by an explosion. And I believe the Japanese were pretty intent on Nolan not showing that, but I don't think Nolan would have. I I think this was just the right way to go, as I detailed earlier. Oppenheimer walks out and sees his picture on the cover of Time magazine with the headline, Father of the Atomic Bomb. And we then cut to a scene that I was definitely looking forward to seeing how Nolan would handle it, Robert goes to meet Truman, who congratulates him for his part in helping bring his boys home, and Oppenheimer isn't too keen on accepting it. And my head is tilting to the side like a confused dog for about 30 seconds, (laughs) because I recognize Truman, but I cannot figure out why I recognize Truman for just a few minutes. Jen got it right away. As soon as he appeared, she's like, oh, that's Gary Oldman. Like she whispered in my ear. I was like, holy shit. I had to do a triple take. I had no idea that he was here. Had no uh, clue. He came in for one day to get put into this makeup and give a performance that was worth the wait. He is so good shooting down Oppenheimer's request for the program to be shut down because of the blood on his hands. Like Truman tells him that Hiroshima is not about him, and he calls him a crybaby on his way out the door. All, by all account and purposes, true accounts. I knew instantly that was Gary Oldman because I wasn't surprised because I'm like, that's the only person it could be because it's Christopher Nolan and Gary Oldman has made it his mission to play as many historical people as possible. Uh, he has played both Churchill and Truman now. I can't wait for the, the, the one-man show where he plays Stalin, Truman, and FDR in the same movie. <laughs> By the way, this is way better than his version of Churchill. Yeah, I still can't believe he won an Oscar for that. I can't either. Uh, that, that was the biggest body of work award they could possibly give. Truman does have a point. No one gives a shit who built the bomb, just who dropped it. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the public, that's completely true. I mean, people still remember Truman for ending World War II and dropping the bomb. Mm-hmm. Nothing else, but that's still what he's remembered for. We're then hearing that Oppenheimer's brother was blacklisted and that Truman okayed the H-bomb program. Strauss tells Robert that Fuchs, the scientist Oppenheimer brought on to the team, was revealed to be a spy. Strauss is about to give up as we cut to Oppenheimer being told of how much Hiroshima affected its victims, and he's also given awards giving and giving speeches. This movie does a really good job of outlining the guilt that he has here. Although there's, by all accounts from people, and I remember reading this in the book, he never expressed regret at building the bomb, did he, Matt? Not in that context as far as like the loss of human life, but I, I think... History would have played very differently if we dropped it on Germany as opposed to Japan. Yeah. Six years ago, Strauss is humiliated by Oppenheimer, and this is what made Strauss himself indulge on some kind of takedown of what Oppenheimer is doing. We're then hearing how Strauss has put his own team together to take Oppenheimer down. Kitty is scared. Remember Kitty? She's here. (laughs) Emily Blunt's still here. She's scared of Robert losing his job and them losing their house. 
and that he must fight Strauss. We're now out of the building of the bomb, and the last part of this movie is strictly a courtroom drama. I didn't know how Nolan was going to handle a courtroom drama, but again, I'm still not feeling the time. I, I agree with you. It's amazing if you would have told me that, you know, that the, the Trinity test happens, and then we spend the next hour between a closet court scene and a Senate court scene. For, the, for a third of this movie, I would have thought this thing would have ground to a halt, and it doesn't, and I'm surprised at that. And it's the performances and the writing that keep this thing going, because we've seen Downey, you know, here and there throughout the movie, and now that some of that villainous side starts to come out, boy, does he get to shine. And for those who say this movie feels too long, you guys can't handle the truth. Um, <laughs> this three-hour movie feels shorter than every two-and-a-half-hour movie superhero film. They threaten to reveal another affair that Oppenheimer had, and Dr. Robbie testifies that he's known Oppenheimer since 1928, and he reveals that Oppenheimer is a man of extraordinary character, and he is loyal to the United States to a fault. Borden is then brought in to testify and gives a letter to Hoover that gives reasons why Oppenheimer is a Soviet agent. While these reasons are being read, Oppenheimer utters, is anyone ever going to tell the truth about what's happening here? And this is when I think Murphy shines, is in these scenes here. Like his response to what people are saying, and um, again, all the internal strife going on with him is really the great part of his performance in my eyes. Yeah, it's a hard thing to portray because for all the, all the reports are that Oppenheimer never really stood up forcefully for himself. You know, that he really demurred whenever somebody attacked him that he just kept moving forward kept doing it you know would just not really hang his head but he wouldn't get back in your face he wouldn't fight for himself and that's a hard thing to portray on screen but the way that murphy does this is just really really well done it's believable this way and i'm astonished by how well it works especially because this does not turn into like it's funny you said you can't handle the truth. He doesn't. This doesn't turn into a shouting match with a lot of histrionics. It's still going to be very even keeled. But the movie does such a good job with the relentless intensity of Jason Clark just grilling him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think this is this is actually my favorite part of the movie is this whole last hour where, where uh, Robert Downey Jr. does his best. Like he turns into he turns into Salieri, where he's like, "I am going to do this just out of." jealousy and and i think there was a certain amount of envy on his part completely and that's who strauss was i mean he was this person he was the precursor to mccarthy in the u.s senate and it's oh rami malik is then called to the stand as he has taken the side of reasons why scientists want strauss out of the out of government he says that strauss found ways of destroying oppenheimer's reputation and then he affected the security clearance Groves says that he would not clear Oppenheimer due to his interpretation of the Atomic Energy Act. Kitty then shows up and says that she's against communism and left the party 18 years ago, even though she has a Communist Party card. This is when she finally gets something to do in this film. And this is enjoyable as hell. You know, mm-hmm. but we never get the brilliant, learned, university trained Kitty that she really is until this moment. And whew. It's impressive watching her dress them down. Oppenheimer tells why he opposed the H-bomb when it was suggested to make them at all costs despite the presence of the atomic bomb. We're then seeing the unraveling of Strauss, who's felt completely torn down since that first meeting with Robert N. Einstein. He says that Oppenheimer hasn't once expressed regret at Hiroshima. Oppenheimer says he didn't endorse Hiroshima as a target, as he felt the target was too far, and the buildup of this frustration in the interrogation room and light surrounds them. 
Oh, boy, this is just gripping stuff, man, as you're going through this. And you know what? It sounds very, very, you know, the way the scene's being read, like you would think, oh, boy, just another courtroom scene. But the truth is the way Nolan has built this and the way the suspense is being done and the way you're feeling the tension of everything around it, like this is just gripping, gripping stuff. You could argue the movie changes genres here, but I think it's just part of the piece because the foundation for this is clear as day in the first part. Mm Mm-hmm. It is then apparent that he wanted to be known for Trinity not dropping of the actual bomb itself. The court comes to the conclusion that he is a loyal citizen, yet they voted to deny the tripping of his security clearance. He calls Kitty and tells her to not take down the sheets. Strauss is then told that he was also denied, and that one holdout was some young senator trying to make a name for himself by the name of John F. Kennedy. Ugh, one stretch. God damn it! One line too far. That's unnecessary. Yeah, th- this is the this is the Robin line. I knew you were gonna yes. fucking say that. I yes. knew it. And you know what? That's like, exact. That's the exact reason I love it. Oh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> you could have just said junior senator. People that know. You know what though? That's not for me. That's for the people who don't know. You know who, for some reason, still have a boner about this fucking Kennedy guy that only was president for two years. Get over it. <laughs> Back into the left. Yeah, and his family also caused more harm than good in the grand scheme of things. Let's no be shit. Gosh, canonizing that family. Yep, and his Ted Kennedy's car has killed more people than my family's <laughs> firearms. Let's, let's be honest. Kitty says, despite this victory, the world will not forgive him. Strauss is convinced that Oppenheimer turned scientists against him one by one, starting with Einstein. He is then told something that's perfect. What if that conversation wasn't about you at all? That That's the crux of it, right, Adam? Like, this guy is making it all about himself, and that's kind of his downfall. Yeah, I mean, he literally lived years plotting the downfall of this person who he could have rode the coattails of into history, and instead, because of this misconception, brought about his own downfall. Brought about both their downfalls, actually. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's it's chaos. You know, it's chaos theory. Physics is messy. We actually finally see the conversation in color, so we know it's true to the word. And we hear that Einstein warned him of the exact things that happened in this movie. And to remember that it won't be for you, it will be for them. Oppenheimer concludes that he does indeed believe they started the chain reaction they always feared. As the score builds up, and we end on those big piercing blue eyes of Killian Murphy, and credits roll on Oppenheimer. What did you guys feel once we finally got this conversation? Oh, it was, it was well worth the wait, because it's also reminding you that everything that was done in this movie, unlike what Strauss believed, in the name of science, which will always trump ego and emotion every single time, which is funny, because this is the opposite of what Nolan was saying in, in, in Interstellar, where he argued that love, which is a basic human foundation, will triumph over science every time. Maybe that's why I like this movie so much, is that it's spinning in the face of Interstellar, so I highly enjoyed it. Yeah, to you know, to end this way, where we're told at the beginning that these two they didn't like each other, they respected each other, but they did not like each other. They were you know looked at physics differently. Oppenheimer kind of brought around not the downfall, but you know had surpassed Einstein, and Einstein was kind of out to pasture at that point. So to end with these two there, and this conversation's going on, and it's getting to the point, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, end it, end it, please just end it right here. And for one of the first times, it ends exactly where it should. Uh, and it, it great that way. All right. I kind of get a feeling where I know where this is going on a scale of 1 to 10. What do we give Oppenheimer? Adam. 
It's it's a shame that I waited weeks to see this movie. I wish I could have seen it with a much bigger crowd, uh, and then, and that's regretful. I am happy so many people are turning out to see this movie. One for Nolan, for Universal. Too bad Warner Brothers screwed up there. But this type of filmmaking, I hate to say, you know, this adult type of filmmaking because it seems insulting, but it's not. You know, some movies are okay to be made for grown-up audiences or mature audiences, and and this is one of those. I'm extremely happy that Killian Murphy is getting the notice that so many like us have noticed throughout the years, but this thing, on its surface, you have Christopher Nolan is going to take a movie about J. Robert Oppenheimer to the big screen. When you pitch that, there is nothing about that that says this is going to be the highest-grossing World War II movie of all time. However, the storytelling, the amazing cinematography, you know, this thing does not need to be an IMAX or Dolby screen or MPX. You know, there's a lot of stuff inside classrooms. There's a lot of stuff inside buildings. But the few vistas that we have are beautifully shot. The practical bomb that he did and the way that that's on screen looks amazing it's this thing is done superbly um the score is one of the best in nolan films and that's saying something because i love zimmer's work and i think he's been fantastic with nolan so far the cast we've spoken highly you know about most of them for damn good reason except for emily blunt who I don't think was as great as many people do. I loved her at the end, but for most of it, I thought it was only okay. Robert Downey Jr., superb. I think this is, as was said, I think this is the type of role we're going to see him sink his teeth into for a lot of the rest of his career. This is huge for Nolan, and as much as I love some of his original works, this is adapted. It's based on a book. Uh, you know, this is not an original from him, but I appreciate and love that this movie exists. I hope peop- more people go out to see it. It's really a tour de force. And I said it before, but I can't think of another three-hour movie that goes by as quick as this one does. This is, I, I mean, it's a its a damn good movie. It's not his best, but it's one of them. This is a strong 8 on 10. Which one do you think is better? I'm curious. It's a, see, I've only seen this once, you know. Okay. But I, Give it time. I, I love Inception. Yeah, you know, me too. I absolutely love Inception. Um, I love Batman Begins. Yeah. You know, and I'm one of, but I I watch Interstellar yearly. Oh boy. Okay, we'll end it there. <laughs> um, <laughs> Goudreau. A torture was outlawed on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> I think my my biggest surprise was that for a movie that has all of Nolan's tendencies and traits as a filmmaker that I enjoyed this as much as I did, because I think I, I've... I'm not going to say I've soured on Nolan by any means, but Dunkirk notwithstanding, as the only outlier, I haven't loved any of his movies since The Dark Knight, up until now. I think this is a return to form, at least for me, with what I like. You know, guys in suits talking about trying to understand the world while ultimately failing to show human emotion. that That's what this movie's about at the end of the day, but it's its one of the most well-crafted movies he's made in a very long time. And I was also worried that he was the sole screenwriter. 
but I thought he did a very good job of keeping this riveting. I did not feel the length, and it's it's a movie that's made with confidence sans utter arrogance, which I think sometimes he did. Like, Tenet, that's how I would su- summarize my thoughts on that as the years have gone on. You know, uniformly, I think this cast is as, you know, unlike a lot of his movies, there's no weak link. You know, everyone knocks on Katie Holmes and Batman Begins. You don't have that instance here. Uh, you could argue Emily Blunt, but I don't think that's her fault. I think that's how her character's written. I am very curious to watch this a second time because I, I genuinely believe I will. And I think as awards season ramps up, I hope this doesn't get the 180 that happens when certain movies become Oscar favorites because as of now, I think this is a, a deserved, deserved front runner and one of, I'd say one of the five best movies of Nolan's career. So I'm at a very strong 8 on 10 for this. You know, I want to make a comparison, and this is not going to sound like a compliment, but it truly is. I think this is Christopher Nolan's JFK, to bring that name up again. And what I mean by that is, you know, Oliver Stone came out with JFK back in 1992, and it was looked at as a very big event film. I ended up seeing it. I ended up doing a rendition of the final scene of it for a his, for a class I was taking. I, I find this to be his JFK, and by that I mean I find this to be his masterpiece. I think JFK is Oliver Stone's masterpiece. I think Oppenheimer is Christopher Nolan's masterpiece. Now, Adam has a point. I've only seen this twice. Nolan's movies are the type that the more you... the bet, The great ones are the more you watch them, the better they get. I'm going to be curious once it comes out on streaming once I get the Blu-ray, once I get the 4K, all of it. And I put put it on, and it still holds up as much as I feel it does. But I got to say, you are never going to see a quicker three hours at the movies. And for that, I mean, how many three-hour movies have the three of us reviewed? And this thought, my God, just get it over with already. This thing was over, and I looked at my watch. I was like, that's it? I could have sworn there was like at least another hour to this thing. And I could have watched another hour of it. I think the performances here are superb. I even, I, unlike Adam, I find Emily Blunt very good in here as well. I think she portrays what she's given very well. I think just the structure of this, Matt hit it on the head for me. That's exactly what I was going to say is it is his best crafted film by far. It is not linear storytelling, which is the only reason I would not recommend it to people like my mother who, once nonlinear storytelling comes into play, she's pretty quick to turn things off. But you guys are right. This had to be told this way in order to keep it as captivating as it is. And the wraparound story between Oppenheimer and Einstein, it seems like a small thing, but it's so poignant in the future of what, of the guilt that Oppenheimer feels throughout the course of this. It's not perfect. There's definitely instances, uh, Nolan, please stay away from sex scenes in the future. Please stay away. You are so good at the coldness that comes with your films, and I still feel that coldness in this. But other than that, I think this is a pretty damn near perfect film. It At, at this point, it is above Inception as my favorite, right next to The Dark Knight, but it's very, very close. And I think more people should see this. I think this is one of those movies that I'm not going to be the hyperbole and say it's safe cinema along with Barbie. But I got to say, 
just that whole weekend, just to see people post what they were seeing that weekend and how they were feeling when they were coming back. Everybody had smiles on their faces. And you can't beat that when it comes to a movie-going experience. And it's going to be really, really fun to see how Hollywood tries to replicate it because I think it's it's not going to happen. Barbie may have made a billion dollars. And I'll be honest, I still haven't seen that movie. Me and Jen have already decided we are going to see it eventually. But for now, I, I hold Oppenheimer to be the best film of the year. And uh, Matt and I still have not reviewed a film throughout the course of a year that ended up winning Best Picture. I think this one has a strong chance of doing that. Not that that is any sort of temple whatsoever, that that is any sort of <laughs> quality control, but I, I, I think this is this is going definitely going to be nominated like Top Gun Maverick was last year, which we covered. And uh, who knows? Killian Murphy may be in line for one. Gary Oldman may be in line for one. And Christopher Nolan may be in line for one. This might be what gets him the statues like Schindler's List did for Steven Spielberg. As for my final score, uh, I'll go same. Eight. Eight out of ten. Just for those simple, tiny little stumbles. But I, I still feel this needs to be seen. So go see Oppenheimer. It's well worth it. Just yeah. feel that sound just engulf you because, man, this movie's drama engulfed me much the same way. So I just All right. Say, I Go just ahead. I have to say the record, since you said this was probably your favorite after the, after the Dark Knight, I would put this third. I would put this behind Batman Begins and Memento for me. Wow. And uh, you're still going to withhold judgment, huh, Adam, where it lands on your favorite Nolan film? If I was to rank them all up, well, like Matt said, definitely top five. But yeah, it's tough. And I still haven't seen Dunkirk. I've heard amazing things about that. But yeah, Batman Begins, uh, Memento, Inception. Yeah, this is four or five. It's tough. It, I, I don't have a bad one. And it depends, oh. on, my, it depends on my mood. You mm-hmm. know, some of it really does. Okay, that does it for Oppenheimer. Do you think, and we haven't really done this before, do you think this will have the most nominations come Oscar time? Yes, because it's going to do very well in the technical categories. Yeah. I, I think this is that. one of the ones that pull out like 11 or 12 nominations. I think Pew and Blunt are going to split supporting actress. I do think Downey's going to get mm-hmm. rewarded for his career. I do think Murphy is going to be nominated, but I don't know if the Academy loves him enough. Same with Nolan. You know, he's loved, but he's also kind of, he's like Oppenheimer. He's kind of off on an island sometimes. He's kind of like Spielberg was in the late 80s, where he's very well respected by a lot of people, just not the people who give out Oscars. In in the same way, it's like, oh, he's got time. He'll do this for 30 more years. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll Scorsese him eventually. You also have to look at, like, what's coming out as far as competition. Yeah, exactly. Um, I haven't really done a whole extensive dive into, like, the, the Oscar-type movies that are coming out. I mean, if there's anything that springs to mind, let us know. In the, I think Scorsese's new movie is going to do very well, uh, assuming it's really good, uh, which by all indications it is. I did see a trailer for that before this. Yeah, yeah. same here. Jen really wants to see it. It, God, it, it is, she, it she is gripped funny my arm. that a lot of that is about DiCaprio's character interacting with J. Edgar. Like, yeah. I mean, that, that is funny. That is funny. Hell. Yeah. I, I think those two, Michael Mann's Ferrari movie is coming out this fall. Mm. David Fincher's got a new movie coming out. Dune 2, maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a whole other thing. we got to wait and see with this whole strike thing. Yeah, what well, yeah. gets pushed the next year. Yeah. yeah. Napoleon's probably going to suck because it's Ridley Scott, uh, <laughs> and I will, believe it's, I will believe it's good when I actually see it. But that is a guaranteed nomination for, for Phoenix. I don't know, man. The Last Duel was pretty damn good. I think there's a way that that could be really good. But. The Last Duel took place during my last nap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that. Boring as shit. <laughs> speaking of naps, let's talk about what we're going to be doing next week. 
And my God, next week, Matthew Goudreau is going to have a lot of explaining to do. Why don't you talk about what we're no, doing? No, you go ahead, because I did the last one talking about Supergirl, on Supergirl. You're the one who put this fucker on the schedule, so you defend it. Okay, so yeah, I do have some defending to do. Not of the movie, but the reason why it's being reviewed. So for the Batman shows, we did Catwoman, which only bears representation to the actual material in name only. And the fact that there's a DC logo in front of it. So I said, there is an equivalent in the Superman continuity. And no, it's not Supergirl. You know, there was a time where we let Shaquille O'Neal do whatever he wanted, no questions asked. And because of that, we are doing Steel. Because people don't, a lot of people don't know, it is based on a character that's from the Superman comics. Mm -hmm. It was a black starring superhero before Blade. Mm -hmm. Um you know, the year prior. And uh, is it any good? Well, we'll talk about that when the time comes. But I felt it would be, we couldn't do Catwoman and then not do Steel. It would be hypocritical. All right. So next week, Steel. Adam, what are you expecting next week? Pain. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't, like, I know this movie exists. And that's it. I know the character Steel, John Henry Irons. They actually do a decent job with them. And Superman and Lois is a good character. But... If you ask me, do I have any faith that a Shaquille O'Neal starring movie is going to be good? Still, no. <laughs> um, but who knows? Maybe it'll be campy fun, and I can get some enjoyment out of it, like you did Catwoman or some of that kind of stuff. Supergirl. You know? I enjoyed Supergirl last week for what it was. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it can't be. Nothing is as bad as Elektra, so, you know, I got hope. But... Oh, that's coming up. <laughs> that's see. coming up right over the horizon. Never finished it. <laughs> 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 All right, boy. I don't think you get a bigger contrast than doing Oppenheimer one week and then steal the next, but here we are. <laughs> Till next week, boys, it's been really a joy going through this movie with you guys. And Matt and I, we are knee deep in wrestling. We have reviewed two wrestling events and we're getting set to review two more. Those will be coming out weekly. So be sure to keep checking. Every Monday is when those get dropped. And, of course, football season is coming. And, boy, I know Matt has tons of things to say about that. So many things going on on the site. And, God, am I so fucking glad I decided not to do that goddamn Met show. <laughs> this site would probably still not be up if I had decided to do that. All right. Till next week when we do Steal. We're not podcasting, just denying. Thank you, gentlemen. We can be trusted with such a weapon, but I know the Nazis can't. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Join us next week for an entirely new review. This is a matter of life and death. If you'd like to hear Garrett and Matt talk about the rest of Nolan's filmography, please head on over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. 
Edited by Garrett. Voiceovers by Adam. And if you enjoyed this show, please check out our other podcast series, such as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, the films of the DC Universe featuring Batman and Superman, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, Avatar, and so many more. Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. the Japanese surrender if they knew what was coming. I will never go to a movie theater in a mask again. <laughs> that was just... We should have uh, Robert Pattinson, that but I went... Near, especially for well, a movie I, that was damn near three hours. Oh, God. Yeah. It was not good either. Yeah, yeah. I risked life and limb to watch that crap. Adam, say your line because it was a good one. Can't remember what it was. Sorry, your it's wife not. went for your wife went for who? Oh yeah, and yeah, my wife went with me for one reason: Robert Pattinson. <laughs> and you went for John David Washington. No. <laughs> <laughs> They all made $4 million each to do this film, which, God, give me $4 million to do a job. I'm not going to call that a pay cut. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, this was one of those things. Even after, and I found that interesting that, I'm sorry, Matt, let me finish this. Oh, God. Is this the first time we've seen Nolan use this black and white to color technique since Memento? I, uh, I believe so. Thanks. I was trying to think. Was there some? No, Prestige doesn't. Prestige? No. Or not Not Prestige, but um, Insomnia plays with color palettes. Or not Insomnia. God dang it. Interception. Ah, fuck. <laughs> Inception. Inception. Damn, Inception plays with color palettes, but. One thing I was going to mention. Oh fuck! I lost my train of thought. God damn it! I didn't have it written down. I should have written it. I should have written it down. I should have written down as Adam was talking, and I just didn't do it. I'm sure it'll come to me when. Oh, here's here's what I was gonna say. Um, Strauss tells Roberts that Fuchs, Fuchs, yeah, Fuchs, <laughs> Fuchs. Yeah, Oppenheimer, Fuchs. <laughs> yeah, he sure does.
the court comes to the conclusion that he is a loyal citizen, yet they voted to deny the tripping of his security clearance. And I want to wait for this plane to fly by. Hold on, gentlemen. Okay. And, my God, next week, Matthew Goudreau is going to have a lot of explaining to do. Why don't you talk about what we're reading? No, you go ahead, because I did the last one talking about Supergirl. You're the one who put this fucker on the schedule, so you defend it. Well, I don't... What what are we actually doing? Because I I genuinely don't know. Steel. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I do have some 